Welcome to LFPL's At the Library series, an ongoing podcast featuring author talks, programs, and events at the Louisville Free Public Library. For more information about upcoming events, visit us online at www.lfpl.org forward slash upcoming events dot htm. Celeste Ng is the New York Times best-selling author of two novels, Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere. Just released in paperback, Little Fires Everywhere was Amazon's number two best book and best fiction book of 2017 and was named a best book of the year by over 25 publications. It's a complex suburban saga and it was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and is currently being adapted for an eight-episode series on Hulu starring Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington. I always depart from the script just a little. It is also one of the most beautifully written books that I have read in a very long time. I thought it was really great. And then parenthetically, I would also say that if you don't follow Celeste Ng on Twitter, she also has an engaging and highly entertaining and informative Twitter feed, so it's worth checking out. She's being interviewed tonight by Louisvillian Ann Bogle. Ann is also an author and is the creator of the popular Modern Mrs. Darcy blog and the What Should I Read Next podcast. She's also an avid library supporter, and I have it on good authority, a new member of the Friends of the Library. Please help me welcome Ann Bogle and Celeste Ng. Now, can you hear me? How about now? Can you hear me? I'm not going to do the Verizon thing. Okay. Are we good? All right, and you can hear us in the back? Not very well. If I do this? Okay, she's giving me a thumbs up. Better? People in the back, can you hear me? All right. Oh. I had to do the Verizon thing. All right. Lots of time to see friendly faces. Okay. So we sold this place out weeks in advance. Louisville should be on the map as a literary mecca. We are not yet, but we are doing it. All right, if we have any What Should I Read Next listeners here, you are about to find out that that show was edited, and carefully. So apologies for having to hear that live. (laughs) Celeste is a pro, luckily. I've seen your videos from your book tour. You do great. We'll get through it. Okay, so thank you for having us here. Thank you so much for being in conversation, Anne. I'm so excited. Oh, I cannot. Uh, my deadline is on Monday, and it's my kid's last day of school. But those are just minor things to get to come talk to you. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, well, I'm glad I get to tell you the story in person. So one of my favorites, I, I'm an avid reader. I talk to a lot of avid readers. I love story about readers and their books. And one of my favorite experiences, seeing a fellow reader get lost in a book. Reading is solitary. You don't get to see people read a lot. Yeah. But I got to see someone reading Everything I Never Told You on a bus in New York City, circa like 2016 maybe. So they had the paperback. They're reading it like this. 
And I didn't know where I was going, so I was paying lots of attention. Maybe she was a regular, but I saw her glance up at a certain point and like look back down at her book. And then after we went through the next stoplight and people had gotten off the bus, she looked up, put her book down, went, oh, expletive. <laughs> she clearly missed her stop because yeah. she was reading your book. And I don't know if you like had this on your bucket list to write a book that makes people miss their bus stop, but uh, I don't think that would make any author sad. No, I think that's pretty high on any author's list of possible compliments that you were so mm -hmm. involved that you missed your stop on public transportation. Okay. Right, right. Do you want to like stop and do a cartwheel? Do we high five? I, we can high five. Okay. <laughs> You're doing it, Celeste. So something that I love about your work is that you write in this sweet spot that is Literary fiction, I mean, your sentences are gorgeous, Paul was just saying. It's obvious that you pour lovingly over every line, and I love that experience as a reader. But I mean, baby, like you can turn those pages when you're reading, and that combination of compulsively readable and beautifully literary prose does not always go together. Did you go into the writing process knowing that's what you wanted to do, or did the story come out that way eventually. Yeah, I, I mean, I started off when I was a teenager, I thought I wanted to be a poet. So language was one of the things that drew me to writing first. Um, I was writing poems and they became longer and longer and more and more narrative. And I realized that maybe fiction was a better genre for me. So I still write by ear, um, mm -hmm. but language is really important. I want the sentences to sound beautiful. I love turns of phrase. Um, I love pretty words. But at the same time, I'm also a reader. Um, I think of myself as primarily a reader. And uh, we, we tend to talk in the world of literary fiction anyway about page turners as if it's this backhanded compliment, like it's a little patronizing, like, oh, it was a page turner, meaning <laughs> like there was no substance mm -hmm. to it or there's mm -hmm. no literary value. And I don't agree with that. I think that if I'm a reader, I want to be hooked into the story. I want to stay up late reading and find out what's going to happen next. Um, and I don't think that those things can't go together. I think you can have beautiful sentences. I think you can have a plot, which um, for many writers, they see almost as like a dirty word. But I, I like plot. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want also for you know to come out of a book thinking about things a little differently. Um, you know, maybe being exposed to an idea or, you know, asking questions that I had never asked myself mm -hmm. before. And so it is one of my goals when I'm writing to try and do all of those things because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. No, but they feel that way more than I wish they did. And it's funny you said that you wanted your book to have substance as well as be a page turner because I just reread this for the first uh, for maybe the third time this week. And it's funny, when I pulled it off my shelf again, I just had Celeste sign my heavily annotated copy. It's, it's actually really flattering to see. Like, <laughs> you got all these notes, and I was like, oh, man, you are smarter about this book At than I At least the dog didn't drill on it or anything. That's a sign of love to me, if your pet is, like, chewing on your book or your baby has got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I love when not people, your kids, not your dog. So I, I love when people <laughs> come up to me at readings and they have like a book that is sort of like frayed at the edges and clearly been worn over, and they always apologize. But I love that because it shows that like they have been with this book and they've been living with this book. It's okay for books to look red, but what I thought was interesting was I remembered the story and. I remembered how much happened, and I had in my mind that it was a much longer book than it was, mm -hmm. and. I just couldn't believe how much you had packed into just a little over 300 pages. Yeah, I never come to a story thinking, okay, I'm going to write a story about mm -hmm. X. I'm going to write a story about, you know, like 
feminism or something like that. Um, for me, it's that that always would sort of kill off the little sprout of the story. But um, I think my writing projects teach me what it is that I'm thinking about. They teach me the things that I'm trying to figure out in my own life or the things that obsess me. And so I realized when I was writing this that I was writing a story about motherhood, which is a topic that's really important to me because I am a, I am a mother. I have an eight-year-old. I have an eight-and-a-half-year-old at home. Um, <laughs> I have gotten in so much trouble because I keep forgetting. The half has become very important to mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And I keep on saying that I have an eight-year-old, mm -hmm. and I, he... he lets me know that I've made an error and I'm trying to correct this. I'm not doing well. Um, but I, you know, I, I am a mother, but I'm also, I'm also a daughter. Um, my mother is still alive, and so I'm kind of looking at motherhood in two different directions. I'm looking back on my relationship with my mother and thinking about how she raised me and what I want to pass on to my son, and I'm also trying to parent my son in ways that make sense for our modern world. Mm -hmm. So I realized that was one of the things that I was interested in. And tied to that, I realized I was interested in these issues of, of race and class and, and more broadly speaking, privilege. Um, so all of that, for me, always grows out of the story. Mm -hmm. It's never sort of like woven in afterwards. So race, class, privilege, those are big topics. But I think I've read, you've said that you start with an image in your mind. Was that the way in? Was it one picture in your mind, one character, one scene? Where, where did you begin telling your story about these themes? In this, in the case of Little Fires Everywhere, it really started with wanting to write about my hometown. So the novel takes place in a town called Shaker Heights, Ohio, uh, which is a suburb of Cleveland, and it was my actual hometown. Uh, I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of readers who read the book, and then they say to me, I Googled, and this is a real place. Did you know this is a real place? And I'm like, I, I did know, because I, I grew up there. And I was like, I, I promise you, it is you know, as much like this as, as I could make it. Um, but I, I, the thing happened to me that, that happens, I think, to a lot of people. When you grow up in a town, you think that that's how the world is. You think that it's kind of normal, and everywhere else is more or less like that. And then, you know, I went away to college and I realized how unusual my hometown was in both sort of good ways and then in less good ways. Um, I learned, for example, that a lot of the rules that I had taken as being totally normal, like you have to cut your grass or the city will come and cut it for you and then send you a bill for the yard work that they did, uh, which is a thing that happened to us when we went on vacation. Um, or, or that you cannot put your garbage at the curb on garbage day because it will make the street look messy. You have to keep your garbage at the back of your house where no one can see it. And the city has these tiny little garbage trucks that go down every person's driveway and pick up the garbage and bring it to the regular garbage truck. I've tried to Google these little garbage trucks. They are not on YouTube. I know. Yeah. I, I'm kind of amazed that nobody has put up a video of this. But um, in 2008, when the economic recession hit, uh, Cleveland was, was suffering particularly badly, and all of the cities were looking for ways to cut their budgets. And Shaker Heights was too, and they said, you know, maybe we could save some money if we got rid of these little garbage trucks. And the residents overwhelmingly said, no, we cannot let our garbage be seen on the curb. So they, they kept the garbage trucks. So um, you're talking about a community where, now I know you have great love for your community. I do, yeah. But you're also talking about a place where appearances are really important, yeah. which I'm sure is positive in some ways, but also has a provides real, much scope for the imagination. It has a real downside. I mean, that, yeah. just that one detail about the garbage trucks seems so um, sort of like metaphorically rich to me that you have to hide all of your messy human business 
that everybody has. We're all just going to pretend like we don't have garbage. Um, and so I wanted to write about the town, both all of the really good things about it, and also these kind of maybe sides, the, the, the slightly less good side mm -hmm. of it. Um, and when I started thinking about this town, I tried to imagine a family that would embody the town. And that's how the Richardsons came up. Mm -hmm. And when I started to think, okay, clearly they're being set up for some kind of downfall. That's my job as a, a mean fiction mm -hmm. writer is we make mm -hmm. trouble for our characters. Mm -hmm the image of the house fire kind of came. And so it did start with that first image that's right on the first page. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as a recovering perfectionist, mother of four <laughs> children, of course, it wasn't terrifying at all to read what happened to the Richardsons. Um, <laughs> so you have this family that exemplifies what this perfect community of Shaker Heights is like. Is like. But then, just like you did in your debut novel, you drop an outsider in their midst. What is it about the story of the outsider, about their perspective? Well, I think I'm, I'm interested in outsiders a lot in this question mm -hmm. of who gets to belong and what ways you get to belong because I've often felt like an outsider in my own life. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh and I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh in what was a very white suburb at the time and I think it still is. Uh, in my elementary school there was one black girl and there was one other person who was not white, who was me, and that was it in the entire school. Um, and then I, I moved to Shaker Heights when I was 10, and although it was much more racially diverse, it was at that time almost 50-50 black and white, which is, was very unusual for, for Cleveland. Um, I, there were very few Asians. I did an interview recently where they, someone asked actually, what, what, I think they said, what percent Asian was your class? So I pulled out my high school yearbook mm -hmm. and I counted. And I think we had in a class of 370 something, we had nine Asians. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've always felt a little bit like I did not totally fit into the place that I was in. I was always very aware of being a person who stood out visibly mm -hmm. and who came from a different background. I'm a kid of immigrants, um, you know, I'm Chinese-American. And so I'm, I'm interested in the ideas about who we let into our communities mm -hmm. and who we kind of keep at a distance. And they're not always the same things. Sometimes you let people in in one way, but you hold them off in another way. And that's just a fascinating dynamic for me. So you're writing what you know. In some ways, yeah. I mean, neither, neither novel is based directly on my own experience, aside from my having... Okay, I cracked up when I read your interviews online. They asked <laughs> if Lydia was you. They, people, and you can give your answer. People have asked that, so this is not a spoiler, even if you haven't read my first novel. Um, the first novel begins, uh, Lydia is dead, but they don't know this yet. And you find out on, in the first few sentences that the middle daughter of this family has drowned in, in the town's lake. Mm -hmm. And the book sort of follows her family as they try to understand what happened to her and how, how she got there. But people will sometimes ask me in complete seriousness if this book is based on my own life. And I guess it could be. But I, I See, was... we have it together in Louisville. We know. You do, you know. We know. But I think this is, I think this speaks to, to a totally understandable and really common impulse that even I have where we're looking to figure out where fiction, reality overlap mm -hmm. with each other. We want to know sort of what does this have to do with the real world? Is this based on you? Is it based on someone you know? Is it based on a true story? We're looking for how fact and fiction kind of overlap with each other. And so in this sense, even though neither of my novels is, is 
plot-wise based on my own life, there's some emotional truth to it. Uh, I'm writing about people who come into a place where they're not sure if they belong and they're not sure if they're welcome. I'm writing about, I'm also a perfectionist mom. Um, I'm not even sure that I can call myself recovering. Uh, <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of Mrs. Richardson in me. Um, I would very much like, if I could, to plan everything out and avoid any possible disasters. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's possible, but I keep trying. Um, and so there is that sort of emotional truth. And in that sense, the books, the books are, of course, based on me. So let's go back and talk about those opening pages. Something that I found captivating about both your books, again, the first line of everything I never told you, Lydia is dead, but they don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Little Fires Everywhere, we start with a house up in flames. It's so interesting how most authors build to get to that big moment. You start with the big moment and then take us back and show us how we got there, which Human nature is fascinating, and you've set yourself up to really probe it, how and why those events happened. Was that your intention from the beginning? Yeah, I, I, when I'm a reader, I want to know, I love stories about human dramas and family dramas. Um, that's, that's what I like to read about, and that's actually why I write, too, because I'm interested in people, and I'm interested in these human dynamics. Um, but I like to know, as a reader, that we're going to go somewhere. I don't... I don't always have patience for a book that is just going to be about people sort of having feelings and never doing anything. Um, it, it's a rare writer, I think, who can pull that off, and there are great books like that. But I, I, wanted, I want to know when I start a book that we're going somewhere interesting and somewhere exciting. Um, I think maybe a good analogy is if a friend says to you, get in the car, we're going for a drive. I'm not telling you where. You're going to get in the car and just be looking out the window the whole time and trying to figure out where you're going. You're like, okay, we're going on the highway, so we're not going to that place. We, where are we going? Are we, you know, we're, you're not going to sit back and enjoy the ride. You're in some ways going to be really anxious about your destination. If your friend says to you, hey, get in the car. We're going to go to dinner at this, you know, this restaurant, and then we're going to go and see this play. You might say, no, thanks. I don't like that restaurant, and I don't want to see that play. And then you know not to get in the car. But if you say, yeah, that sounds great, you get in the car and you'll sit back and you'll enjoy the ride and you won't be stressing all the time about what's coming down the road. In some ways, you know where you're headed and you've mm -hmm. sort of signed in. And for me, I think the opening of a book is a lot like that. If you open the first few pages, you want some clue that you're going somewhere, right, that, that it's going to be interesting to you. And it might be that a reader picks up the book and goes, nope, I don't want to read about that, and that's okay. But in that way, I wanted the reader to, to not be wondering all the time, are we going somewhere interesting, but to say, here's where we're going, and I want you to be thinking not what, what is going to happen, but, but how did we get here? Not, you know, who done it, but like, how did mm -hmm. we end up in this situation? For me, that's, that's always the question that brings me to the story, mm -hmm. and that's why I wanted to write, and so that's why I want to point the reader in that direction, mm -hmm. too. Well, I know so many readers found the journey of discovering the how very fascinating. And you made it so easy for readers to see what was going on because of the narrative device you chose. Uh, I really, I noticed reading your book that not that many authors choose to give you the God's eye view. Yeah. Although I believe I think you have a different term for it. But you can see the pieces moving. You drop little hints like, oh, they don't know it yet. But something terrible is about to happen. Um, yeah. And you get to see what's happening in everyone's minds. And it's such an interesting way to explore what's going on beneath the surface. 
Yeah, in my, in my first novel, I, I realized partway through that I was writing about a family of five people who were all holding secrets from one another. And one of the problems I was having was that since none of them were talking to each other about these really important issues, the reader didn't get to find out about them. And so I realized that I needed a narrator who could kind of help the reader put all this information together, who could tell them all the things that the characters were not sharing with each other. Um, and I was really afraid, frankly, because I think of that sort of like you say, the, the big God voice. Um, a friend of mine calls it the big voice narrator. You think <laughs> of the like voiceover on a TV show. Um, I think of that as being really old fashioned and I think of that as being very male and very authoritative. So when I think about authors who've done this, like Dickens, uh, Tolstoy, you know, they're, they will say things like, you know, in which Oliver Twist learns an important lesson <laughs> from Fagin. Right, you know, there's that sense of you being told the story in a very obtrusive way. Mm. And I wanted to see if I could do that with a little bit less of the sort of... Um, I, when I read Dickens, I love Dickens, but I do always feel like he's got a very clear moral judgment that he is pushing me towards, mm -hmm. and you are definitely supposed to be, you know, like, in favor of Oliver Twist, and you're definitely not supposed to feel sorry for, like, Fagin. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to try and do that in a way that was maybe a little bit less, um, like, judgment of God kind of voice, mm -hmm. and more sort of, like, helpful side narrator who's just giving you the context to understand what's going on, um, telling you things that maybe you need to know, um, maybe sort of like, like if you imagine Wikipedia where you read something and it tells you a term and you don't know what that is, you can click on it and it'll kind of remind you, you know, what the Treaty of Versailles was or, you know, you know when Abraham Lincoln was president <laughs> and then you go back to what you were doing. Yeah. Um, that was sort of my, my goal with that. Mm -hmm. And in the second novel, because I was writing about a community, mm -hmm. I felt like it was really important in some ways to have a larger voice that was mm -hmm. sort of over all the characters because the community itself is, is a character in the book. And it was helpful to have sort of the voice of like everyone was thinking this. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need to have a narrator who's really carefully parceling out information. Mm. It's, there are a lot of teenagers in this book. I mean, there are so many teenagers in this book. Let's talk about that for a second. How was that as a place to go in your mind repeatedly for, how, how long did it take you to write Little Fires Everywhere? Um, years? It, it took me, I mean, it, the actual writing of it uh -huh. took about two and a half years, but I, I was so proud of myself and I sort of patted myself on the back and thought, good job, you got faster. Um, and then I went back and I looked at my notes and I realized that I'd actually been thinking about this novel and these characters since 2009, so for about six and a half or seven mm -hmm. years. Okay. Um, so that's, that's like half a decade it's a long inside time to spend the teenage brain. How was yeah. that? Yeah. Um, it, it's a very angsty place to be, <laughs> but I, I also, I really enjoy writing about teenagers, mm -hmm. honestly, because I think, um, I think that's such an important formative moment for many of us, mm -hmm. and I, I, I feel for teenagers, I think that they, they're being asked to do a lot of things by the world around them that are maybe not totally fair. They're being, they're almost adults in a lot of ways. They have adult capabilities, you know, they can get themselves into adult kinds of trouble, and yet, at the same time, they are really still kids. And we ask them to be adults when it's convenient for us. And then we ask them to be children and defer to the adults in the room when it's not convenient for us. And that's such a hard place, I think, for teenagers to be. And I remember feeling like that as a teenager. 
And uh, I, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston. And when I, sometimes when I'm writing, I go to the Cambridge Public Library. Um, I, we have a really great public library system and we have a really great main branch where there are a lot of different kinds of workspaces. There are spaces where you can eat, so you can drink coffee while you're working. There are spaces that are totally quiet. They have little pods that you can go into if you really need to not be around anyone else. And the library happens to be right next to the public high school. And they encourage the teenagers to come in and use the space, and they, they do. So any time of day, um, if school's in session, there tend to be teenagers in there. So they're studying, they're mm -hmm. finishing up their homework, they are complaining about their parents or their teachers. Sometimes they are having um, little like group meetings where they're, a lot of them have video cameras, so there's some kind of video documentary making class. But there's always like a group of teenagers in there like working with their cameras. Um, you know, they're flirting with each other, they're mm -hmm. eating their lunch. And it reminds me, um, when I sit there and I listen to them, um, I, don't, I don't use what they say, but it reminds me of how their concerns really are big. I think that we tend to kind of um, denigrate teenagers' concerns. We think, oh, they're just, it's a phase, they're gonna grow out of it, they're not talking about anything important. Mm -hmm. And when I hear them talking, they're actually talking about pretty weighty things. They're talking about you know, friend issues or things that are going on with their parents or about things in the world, frankly, more coherently than many of the adults I hear talk about them. Um, and so in that sense, it was really wonderful to get to write mm -hmm. teenagers and just kind of be in that world for a bit. Mm -hmm. I have teenagers. <laughs> it's a lovely take. See, I, As I, I lay in I bed at night, I'm gonna remember that. I, see, I don't have a teenager yet, and I wonder um, if when my son, so how long do I have, he's eight and a half, so You're I have a poet. Six, I'm a liberal arts six major. and a half, yeah. so like, like five-ish years before mm -hmm. I feel like I hit the real teen years. Mm -hmm. We'll talk again in five years and see. I may then want nothing to do with teenagers. And then maybe I'll, I'll write only about like lovely young children who sometimes listen to their mothers. Um, and get in trouble. Or what kind of plotting would you have? I don't, well, so that's the thing I think about. The, one of the reasons teenagers are so interesting to write about, I think, is because they are almost adults. They can get into trouble, you know, and they, they do things that have real lasting consequences, right? They are old enough to have sex, become parents themselves if they're not careful about what they're doing, to drink um, and get into real trouble and to take actions that can really affect their lives. You know, if, if you're writing about a five-year-old, they might do that too, but I think in some ways they're, they have less freedom and they have less agency. And um, that, that's one of the reasons I think that I've always been drawn to writing about adolescents because they're at this moment where they're sort of deciding what kind of person they're gonna be in the world that's not quite decided, but they're at that moment where they're about to jump off in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, we, we started talking about teenagers from the narrative voice. It's funny, I didn't know you were afraid of being Dickensian. Um, and I didn't think of it as being a Wikipedia page, but I did think of this, maybe because there's so many um, feminine friendships in this novel, but I thought of you as leaning in and saying, hey, what's she thinking? Hey, you should know this. Oh, I like hey, did that you interpretation. Hear? Yeah, I mean, because there is sort of... I mean, we want, we want the, the scoop. I really like that interpretation, actually, because in some ways, the, the narrator in, in Little Fires Everywhere does function as um, a little bit of a gossip, in, a, in, yes. a, in, in, in not necessarily a bad way, but of saying, like, by the way, let me tell you about this thing that she did when she was in college. <laughs> 
and and that that informs and how we wanna, you I mean, that's what we lean right? in for. We want to hear that. Well, this is one of the. We're reasons, not talking about Sheryl Sandberg either. This I mean, like, dish it. This is one of the reasons that I like writing in in public places um, because when you're, I think it's human nature that if you're sitting at a table and the people at the table next to you suddenly lower their voices, <laughs> you immediately lean in because mm -hmm. you know that something interesting is happening. Yes. And you would like to be in on that. I mean, I think that that is a curiosity that it, it's fun for the narrator to satisfy, to tell you, like, let me just remind you about this thing that she did and how hypocritical this thing that she's doing is, right? There's a joy to that. But there's also, I think, it enriches your view of the character. So who you might, a person who might be showing herself and thinking of herself as being, I'm totally the good person here. I am doing this lovely good deed. I am helping people out. I am so generous. It's sometimes useful for you as the reader to know, mm, is she? You know, and to be asked that. And likewise, if you see someone who maybe is making a very bad decision, sometimes it's useful for you to be reminded like, okay, but remember, she's, she's 18 and she's led this kind of sheltered life and she maybe, it doesn't have a good view of the whole situation. Mm -hmm. And also, I, she's living with someone who is hell-bent on keeping her garbage in the back. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're like, just remember what kind of, you know, parenting she's mm -hmm. had. Remember what kind of place she grows up in, right? What her limits are. I mean, for me as the author, I, I always want the reader to feel empathy for, for my characters. And, and by empathy, I mean to be able to imagine themselves into that person's shoes and to say, okay, maybe I don't approve of what you did, maybe I would like to think that I would never do what you did, but I at least understand why you thought it was the right thing to do at that time. Um, when I was writing this novel, my son was five, and he and his friends had just discovered Star Wars, and they would play Star Wars on the playground. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of negotiating about who got to be the good guys and who got to be the bad guys. And it felt really important to talk with him about how in real life there are not usually clear good guys and clear mm -hmm. bad guys. Um, and that a lot of times people who we might call the bad guys don't think that they're the bad guys. They sincerely think that they are the good guys and they think that what they're doing is right and necessary. They might not be right about that, but they think that they are. And it seemed really important to me to, to talk with him about saying, you know, let's understand why someone does it, even if we still don't agree or we still think that they're wrong. I think fiction is a really great place for that to happen. And so I didn't want there to be, you know, I didn't want there to be a clear villain in this book. And I didn't want there to be anybody who came out with totally clear, clean hands either. And part of, part of what, you know, having that narrator in the book who can be telling you the gossip or who can be reminding you like, okay, but to be fair, remember these things about mm -hmm. her, reminds you of the circumstances around these mm -hmm. characters and hopefully lets you see them more like people and helps you, you know, feel empathy towards them in places that you might not if you weren't getting that kind of like back channel whisper mm -hmm. in your ear. On empathy, uh, I thought a real strength of the book was that you showed us how many different ways there are to be as a person. That's very big. Specifically, I mean, holy goodness, there was a kaleidoscope of mother-daughter relationships. So many. You came at that issue in so many different ways. Um, did you? Did that evolve? At what point did you realize that mother-daughter relationships and 
they're multiple, some traditional and some found, yeah. in a sense. When did you realize that that needed to be at the heart of the book? I didn't realize that was sort of what I was interested in until pretty far through the book. I mean, my process is, as I said, I always start writing with characters. And it's not until I get pretty close to the end of a first draft that mm -hmm. I can step back and figure out what, what I was writing about in the first place. Um, but I, I realized it, when I started looking and I saw that I had all these mothers and daughters, like you said, some of them are biological, some of them are aspirational or they want to be mothers, and some of them are, are like you said, found mothers, people who um, are maybe like mother figures um, that, that play mothering roles even if they're not biologically related. I, I realized that that was something that I wanted to talk about, and then I went back to make it more conscious. Um, I, I found out... When I, when I became pregnant with my son, that um, our society has a lot more thoughts about mothering than I'd even realized. And they will tell you those thoughts, whether you ask for that or not, and sometimes even whether you have children or not. Um, you know, I, I knew that we were sort of, you know, as a culture that we, we, we worship, but also really judge and almost fetishize motherhood. I'm, I'm thinking about um, even just tabloid headlines and how so many of them are about who's having a secret baby or who, you know, Jennifer Aniston is so sad because she doesn't have a baby or, you know, Harry and Meghan are about to have their baby and I guess now have had their baby. I've been on book tour, so I'm a little behind on the, <laughs> on the tabloids. But this, there's this, such a fascination with this idea of motherhood. And there are so many messages about the ways that we think mothers are supposed to be and not be. So rules, you're saying? A, ru a lot of rules. And the problem a lot of times is that those rules contradict each other. So I, as, I, as I move through the world of being a parent and I make more friends who are also parents, um, I, I'm hearing th you know, so many criticisms like, well, why did you have your kid when you were so young? Because you weren't, you know, you weren't well established. You know, you, you could have, if you waited, you would have had, you know, more resources. And why did you have your kid so late? Now, you know, your kid is going to be, you know, you're going to be like in your 50s mm -hmm. when your kid is going to college. Or, you know, why did you only have one? Uh, you know, your kid is not going to be well socialized. Or, you know, why did you have four children? You can't possibly be giving them as much attention mm -hmm. as, as they need to be mm -hmm. having. Or, so you're know. like, hold my drink. I'm going to write a book to show you how it can go wrong no matter <laughs> what you do. Well, in some ways, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I realize that there is, apparently, there is no right way to mother, but there are about 8,000 different ways that you can be, people will tell you that you are mothering wrong. And yet we still have this idea that there is a best way to mother, universally, no matter what your circumstance or who you are or any number of parameters. And what I wanted to do, I realized that I was interested in doing, um, again, I didn't come to the book thinking about this, but I realized one of the things that I was interested in doing was kind of refracting that idea of motherhood, of sort of putting it into a prism and splitting it up into its different components. Because I don't think it serves anyone to think about mothering as this monolithic thing, like here are the steps, just follow the steps and you and your kid will be totally fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that that really works, and I don't think that there is a right answer to this. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of just show that the question is complicated. Um, one of my jobs, I think, as a fiction writer is to make things that initially seem simple complicated. To, sh to remind people that, you know, if something seems simple, they're probably not thinking about it hard enough, and that there may be more sides to it that they need to consider. You've given the advice to your fellow writers to write what scares you.
What was scary about approaching this book? Um, everything, honestly. <laughs> um, We're leaning in, Celeste. It's scary. I mean, it's scary to talk about um, big subjects mm -hmm. like motherhood, um, race and ethnicity, um, class. Uh, these are subjects that people tend to have a lot of feelings about, that I have a lot of feelings about. Um, it was scary to write about my hometown because uh, I wasn't sure if they were going to see the portrayal of the town in the way that I meant it, which mm -hmm. was a sort of a loving portrait, mm -hmm. but one that looked honestly at some of the shortcomings of the town. Um, frankly, it was scary to write about the issue of, of adoption yeah. and race at all, um, because there's a transracial adoption that happens in the book. And I was writing this book uh, mostly in 2015 and mm -hmm. 2016, and I sold the book in September of 2016, which was uh, a different political moment than the one that we're currently in, and one in which I, I expected that we would be living in a different pol current political moment than we are currently living in. Um, <laughs> but so, I mean, when, when this book sold, I wasn't sure what our sort of cultural and socio-political landscape was going to be. And then when Trump won the election, when Trump became president, he, you know, I think a lot of these issues, sorry, I come from Boston, I, um, it, it became, I, I sort of went, oh, I'm going to have to talk about race. And that is something we don't like to do in this country for totally understandable reasons. It is really uncomfortable. And yet I had written a book in which issues of race and class mm -hmm. were right up front. Mm -hmm. And I realized that people were going to be asking me about them and yeah. I was going to have to talk about it. Yeah. And so that was terrifying. And I had already sold the book at that point. I couldn't go back. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just something that I, I decided, like you said, I was going to have to sort of lean into. And if people wanted to talk about it, at least this was going to be an opportunity for us to talk about them because I think not talking about those issues is part of why we're here. So for you, how do the times we're in affect the stories that we, and specifically you, are choosing to tell? Um, so I, I wrote this story, obviously, before the, the, the Trump era, as I guess we're going to have to now call it. Um, but these were, I mean, I think it's important to say that these are issues that have been present all along and that many people were aware of and were talking about. Um, and now I think many more people are aware of them. So that's something that's changed. Like these were not new stories. It's not like these issues suddenly came around when Trump walked into the White House. Like they were, had been simmering under the surface all along. Um, I think what's, what's changed about it maybe is hopefully we're starting to see that it is really important to tell some of the stories that haven't been told. And I think we see that in a lot of different ways. We see that with stories about immigration. We see that with stories about um, sexual assault. Um, we're starting to see how important it is to talk about things that have always been happening. You know, the fact that like black people get killed much more often by police officers. And for some reason, you know, nobody wanted to talk about that. And now we're starting to say maybe it's important to, to have stories out there where people hear what happens. Um, I think there's a reason that The Hate You Give, which is a, a novel by Angie Thomas, which deals very directly with police brutality against black bodies, um, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for now like, like two straight years, something like that. I, I hope that it's starting to make people realize that it is important to just hear these stories and acknowledge them 
and then start discussing, well, okay, this is our reality, what do we do about it? Um, for me as a writer, it's, it's meant that I've become more outspoken about these issues, um, not entirely by choice, but because it feels important to be having these conversations. Um, right after the election, um, a, a reporter sent me an email and said, I want to write a story about Thanksgiving. Uh, he sent it to a lot of writers. And he said, I, I want to, you know, I think we all need a break from negativity. So can you just tell every one of you, tell me something that you're thankful about, but no politics. And I, I really wanted to do this. And I thought about this for a long time. And I couldn't come up with an aspect of my life that in some way didn't feel like it was political. Like, I am a child of immigrants. I am uh, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. I am a mother. Um, I have a sister who's a physical disability. I have friends and relatives who are gay. Like, there was just no part of my life. I, I have health care. Um, you know, I, there wasn't a part of my life that I could think of that didn't have this. And so I think maybe we're also starting to see that most stories actually are political, even if we don't mm. think of them as being that, that especially, um, especially for anyone who's out of the mainstream, your life ends up being politicized. And so if you are writing about any aspects of those life, your work has some political valence, whether you mean it to or not. That was a long answer. Despite your best it efforts. It was a good yeah. answer. <laughs> okay, one more question before we're going to use these mics on the sides to start thinking yes. of your questions. Start thinking of your questions and please come up. But otherwise, we'll so. just vamp and. and <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be happy to. Yeah. So, speaking of writing books, telling stories, and living into. Uh, uh, what adjective do we want to use about the reality we're living into, Celeste? Complicated. Living into a complicated yeah. reality, but retaining optimism. I want to ask you about your dedication. Oh, yeah. Here's what we got. To those out on their own paths, setting little fires. Um, I, I thought about who the book was going to be for. Um, my first novel was dedicated to my family, which I interpreted in, in a broad way to mean not just my nuclear family, but also my husband and my son. So that encompasses a number of generations. I, I thought initially about dedicating this book to my friends, um, and I didn't want to single out particular friends because there are a number of them, and the, you only are allowed to have a, a little bit of space. Like, they will cap you at a certain amount and say that you can't. Um, they're like, no, no, you can't list all those people. Um, and so I thought about dedicating it to my friends, and then I thought, well, what, I want to say something about why I admire those people so much, um, what it is about them that made me you know, want to dedicate this book. And what I thought about was the fact that, like, m most of my very good friends, um, they, f they fight for the things that they believe in, um, whether that is their families or their children or political causes or social causes or work that they believe in. Um, they're very passionate about that. And they, I, I just admire their willingness to kind of go out there and put themselves out there for their work. And when I thought about it that way, and I thought about the title, it seemed to me that they were very much sort of um, taking a, a question that, that one of the characters, Mia, asks another character, a teenager. She says, what are you going to do about it? And I admire my friends um, because 
they are doing things about the things that they care about. And so it seemed like the right dedication in some ways to extend that not just to my own personal friends, but to all those people who are saying, okay, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to do something about it. I mean, for me, that's sort of what setting, setting a little fire is. Thank you for being here and Thank for you doing so it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your conversation, Anne. All right, there are two mics up here on my, is that my left, my right? That's your, your right. I'm pointing, well, you got it. there's also one on and your And there's left. one right here. Yeah. One question each. There's always a dude who asks like four. Don't be that person. <laughs> um, oh, here we, we go. We will shut you We down. will ask but questions. Please come, come up Brie and ask questions. Uh, I'm happy to, so I, I'm looking at you, so you got to yeah, go first. I was wondering what the greatest challenge was in writing uh, Little Fires Everywhere and how you overcame it. Oh, great question. Um, for me, the biggest challenge always is about structure, um, which sounds really boring. Um, <laughs> no, I'm listening. But <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to get started on a new novel, and I was complaining to a friend of mine who was also a fiction writer about um, the struggles. And I, I should have known better than to ask a fiction writer, <laughs> because she, I said, you know, the, the, I just need to figure out what the story is and, and how to tell it. And she said, yeah, that's kind of the entire job. <laughs> of writing a book. But, and I, I thought, okay, touche. Um, but for me, um, structure is, is much more than just sort of like the, the order that you put things in. For me, that's really sort of like how you put the whole story together. Because I, I realized that I'm always interested in how the past and the present intersect with each other in my work. For me, I, I can never just start a story at the beginning and move forward. There is always, you know, a, a backstory that's part of it. And so for me, figuring out how to put... Um, a character's background, a character's family history, or a character's, you know, past experiences in there so that you can see how it relates to the present moment. For me, that's always a big struggle because for me, those are always part of the story as they go together. I'm, I'm envious of writers who just start at the beginning and just go forward and never look back. Um, mm -hmm. I think I would like to try and write a novel that way, but I feel like it would, I would inevitably end up just going rack around in circles. <laughs> so for me, that's always the hard part, is figuring out how do I tell what a person is doing now and everything that's happened to them before in a way that makes sense. And for better or worse, if you do an amazing job, you will never notice. That's, that's yeah. it. You know, I realize that if you're doing it right, mm -hmm. it's sort of like if you have someone in your family who's really good at telling stories or sometimes, you know, like this, the funny story about, you know, that time when your uncle did that thing. But they can weave in. Now, you remember your uncle, when he was a little boy, he always was afraid of cats and blah, blah, blah. You know, they throw in the backstory in ways that make sense to you and you don't even realize that they're telling you all this background information. That's sort of my goal. I really loved the importance of photography in the book, and I wondered um, both how you came by the technical knowledge that you include in Mia's background, but also how you chose that particular method of art for her and for her work. That's a great question. Um, so Mia, who's one of the characters in the book, uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, is uh, a single mom, and she's an artist. And she works primarily with photographs, although she, she doesn't do strict photography. Sometimes she will, you know, warp the negatives or she'll do different things to them. She'll cut up the prints and make a collage. She's always sort of experimenting with them. But she uses photography as, as the basis of it. So I knew that I was going to have a character who was going to be the opposite of this sort of very rule-bound, very orderly, very controlled 
uh, family that embodies this town. And uh, it, it was hard to think of a field or a profession that was going to be more opposite that, less stable, less um, attached to rules than the arts. Um, it seemed right to have her be a visual artist. And I thought about the different uh, media that she could be using. And I settled on photography because I think of, of all the fields, it's, it's the one that we think is the most objective. Um, we like to think of photographs as being proof that something happened, right? We think about like photojournalists. But the truth is that, uh, especially if you're a photographer, you know that it's actually always, it's very, very subjective. Um, if you've ever taken a picture to post on Facebook or Instagram, you do this all the time. You decide what's gonna be in the frame. You say, oh, everybody move over to the side because I don't want that garbage can in the picture. Right? Um, you're making a choice all the time, and so you're framing reality to show it the way that you want it to be seen, even before you add a filter, you know, edit things, put stickers on, whatever you're doing. So I, I liked the idea that this character would use something that appeared to be very objective and very realistic, and might then use it to her own purposes to show her own vision of how things were. That seemed like something that this particular woman would do. Once I knew she was gonna be a photographer, um, I had to do research. Uh, I'm not a photographer myself. Uh, my father was a hobbyist photographer, um, and he tried to teach me, but I, I didn't really pay attention to my, my great regret. Um, and so I, I read about the history of photography. I read about um, different well-known photographers and how they sort of stretched the field. I looked at what contemporary photographers are doing, and they're doing all kinds of amazing stuff to figure out sort of all the technical capabilities. And then I went back to my character and I thought, what would this woman um, who has uh, secrets in her past that she's carrying with her, who has certain interests in, in life, um, who's lived a certain kind of life, what would she be trying to explore in her art? And I, I realized that a lot of her art was probably gonna be interested in the idea of um, rebirth or of changing, of one thing transforming into another. And so I, I used all those techniques that I'd read about to kind of make up all her pictures. So they're all fictional. Um, I have a secret hope that maybe someday some artist will take, uh, take on the task of recreating some of those, because I think that they could be done. And to bring it full circle, now that I've learned all this stuff about photography, um, my father passed away a number of years ago, but I have some of his cameras. And so I'm actually now trying to go back and learn how to shoot on 35 millimeter film. Um, and so maybe I will get to figure out those photos someday. Could be fun. Yes, question. Hi, Celeste. I'm actually from Beechwood, Ohio. Beechwood, yay! So you're <laughs> to the next town over. To the next town over. My dad's from Shaker. That's so. where the, the good mall was. Yes, it is. I spent many, <laughs> many hours. It's very famous for its malls. So anyways, obviously this book resonated to me for very personal reasons. Um, I wanted to know, you said you start writing with characters, but at what point did you decide these characters have to be in Shaker and that Shaker was going to become a character? Well, I, I wanted to explore Shaker Heights, and I thought uh, maybe I could fictionalize it um, because writing about your hometown is kind of dicey. It is a lot like writing about a relative in some ways. Like somebody is gonna be like, that's not, that's not what I look, I don't do that. <laughs> um, but I, the more I learned about Shaker Heights, um, its history, the history of the Shakers, who are a religious group who had owned the land before the town was founded, um, the more I learned about them, the more it, it was one of those cases where I could not have made up a better situation 
um, than the one that history had provided. Um, and I realized that I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could make up a town and not have it seem kind of coy. It was gonna be really clear that this was the sort of town that I was looking at. And there were so many details that I wanted to use. Um, so I, I, I did much more research about the Shakers than went into the book, and I will not, so in case any of you are concerned, there is not a treatise on, on the history of the Shakers in there. But I learned all these things about them that I didn't know when I was living there. So if you know anything about the Shakers, if you've ever heard of them, you've probably heard of their chairs or their pegs or their boxes. Or maybe you have heard that they were celibate. Um, so uh, the more I learned about them, that was basically all I knew going into this. But I learned, for example, that they were also, um, they believed in equality of the sexes. And so they had um, male and female leaders. They believed in equality of the races. So they would accept um, freed blacks or black people who showed up and they would ask no questions about where they'd come from. Um, they would accept Native Americans. Um, they were communist. So when you joined, you'd give them all your property and you'd all, it would all be shared in common. But if you wanted to leave, they wrote down what you brought and if you wanted to leave the community, they would give it back. Um, so there were so many things about them that suddenly made my hometown clearer, even though there had never been any Shakers living in, in Shaker Heights. Um, so I, I told you that they were celibate and it's really hard to get people to join your community when one of the rules is that you can't have sex. And it's also really hard to make new Shakers if you can't have sex. So they, they died out, and um, basically then the town founders came and founded the town on their land. But they took a lot of those ideals, this idea of equality, and that we're gonna be sort of like racially progressive, and that we're gonna be sort of forward thinking. All those ideas infused the town. It was like it had seeped into the, the groundwater and had come back up. It explains so many things that I decided I just had to write about this particular town. Um, and, and I hope that I, I did it justice when I wrote it. Thank you. Yeah, question. Hi. Love Hi. both the books, but I'm curious how you feel about your latest being adapted to the Hulu series, if you're involved at all, or how you feel about the casting so far. And Great question. Um, so Little Flyers Everywhere is getting adapted into uh, an eight-episode miniseries um, that will air on Hulu, and it's being produced by Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington, who are going to star in it. Um, and I'm... I'm yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled about it, honestly. Um, my husband keeps saying to me, like, are you, are you feeling possessive yet? Like, is it kicking in? And I honestly, no. Um, partly because having talked with both of the lead actresses and the producer and the showrunner, um, I really trust their vision for the book. I feel like they're seeing it in the way that I want it to be seen. And all the things that they're planning to do with it are things that I, I'm, I like and I'm in favor of. Um, and I, I, I like adaptations. Most of all, I like it when adaptations have space to you know, sort of be away from their creator and someone else can put a spin on them. That's, that's sort of the fun for me. So I'm involved with the show a little bit. I am one of the voices at the table. They keep me looped in. And they've given me all the scripts, so I got to read the scripts and give notes. I got to go out and sit in on the writer's room, which is exactly as cool as it sounds. <laughs> um, they bring you lunch. It's kind of magic. Um, they take an order the night before. They're like, here's what you, we're going to have, and you know, like, what kind of coffee or tea do you like? And then like, you're all sitting there working, and someone quietly comes in and just puts food in front of you. It's like my dream. Um, but... It, it's, it's really, it's been amazing to sort of see the book that I wrote come to life in a different 
medium because TV is different. Um, they've got eight episodes, so they have eight hours to fill. And so they actually get to add in more layers. They get to take things that maybe took a sentence in the book and kind of bring them to life. They get to show you more of the character's backstory. They get to show you um, some of the subplots that kind of get teased up to the top. And I think a lot of the themes that are in the book um, are gonna be sort of more even gone into in more detail in the TV show. And so I'm just really excited about, about having it come to life. And I think they're gonna do a great job. Question. Hi Celeste, I'm a very big fan. And I know uh, that you're very outspoken and in, in a good way, uh, politically and socially active and whatnot. I'm involved in a lot of book clubs online and a lot of authors are afraid to express themselves or to talk about things that they feel, I think because they're afraid they'll lose re readers probably. But I was wondering if, how, how do you come to be able to uh, be honest and share your true feelings about political things or you know, social issues without you know, being judged or worried that that might affect your readership? I mean, to be honest, I, I, I'm sure there are people out there who don't read me because of my political outspokenness. And I'm sure that there are people out there who judge me. I mean, it, honestly, what happened was that I, I started off, I, was, I joined Twitter because it's a thing that your publisher basically asks you to do. Um, it, it's really important now for authors to sort of have a, have a platform. So you have to be on social media. They want you to connect with readers. And to my surprise, I actually really love Twitter. Um, I like talking to readers. And it's a place where, as a reader, I get to fangirl other authors that I love. So I was on Twitter, and I thought, I'm going to just talk about books and book stuff. I'm a book nerd. That's what I'm going to do. And really, what happened was uh, sometime in 2015, 2016, um, honestly, as we started the run-up to the election, I would tweet about things that seemed really innocuous to me, like I would just retweet a book, an article about books that I liked, or um, you know something that d did not strike me as being overtly quote unquote political. And one of the downsides of social media is that sometimes people will, who you don't know, will find you and say horrible things to you. And so there would be waves where I would tweet a, an article, you know, here's a review of a book that I loved, and I would go away to lunch, and I would come back and I would have hundreds of notifications from self-professed white nationalists who would be saying all kinds of vile things to me, calling me all kinds of names, um, you know, suggesting that I go back where I came from, which was like Pittsburgh, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, th this is obviously not what they meant, but I'm, you know, I, I didn't know what to do about this. This was in some ways a fight that didn't come to me, and I'm sort of embarrassed in some ways that I wasn't sort of speaking out about these things before. But as, as this happened, I would have to figure out how I was going to deal with these people. So I tried the old rule of ignore them, bullies will go away. That did not work. Um, and not only did they not go away, they brought their friends to me. And then they would also go and attack anyone else who tried to come to my defense. And this is, will be no surprise to anybody who's spent time on social media as a woman of color, and particularly a black woman, that there are people out there who just don't want you to talk. And for better or for worse, my personality and the way my parents raised me is, oh, you don't want me to talk? <laughs> cool, I'm gonna talk. <laughs> um, but in a lot of ways, I also, I realized that I wasn't the only person this was happening to, and that this was a really huge problem that, you know, I knew had existed what was bigger than I had realized. And 
as my book started to do well, and I'm grateful to found an audience, I started to realize that I was somebody who could in some ways talk about these things, um, that I had people's attention, and also that maybe I would make people feel that they were not alone if I were talking about them. And so I, I started to do that um, with you know, the support of my publisher and with the help of many other people. If I, you know, if I saw people, you know, getting attacked by, like, self-professed Nazis, I would say, look, this is not acceptable, and people would, would listen. They should have listened to the person getting attacked, but they, it took other people kind of backing them up. So now that's something that I'm trying to do more consciously, um, and I'm aware that I have the, the privilege to get to do that, but if people are going to listen to what I have to say, then I want to say something that's important, and I want to try and use that platform to speak up for other people. So that's, that's how it was. The, the fight kind of came to me, but now that I'm you know, here, I, I'm trying to use it for good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, and we appreciate your courage. Thank you. So in Little Fires Everywhere, at the end, Mrs. Richardson. Wait, I, wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause. You. Is, is there gonna be a spoiler? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have to that. for the sake of anybody. No, who no, hasn't no, read no. It. <laughs> no. That was not the plan. All right, good. Um, so she sees what she sees, <laughs> and she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks what she thinks. Right. She thinks what she thinks. Um, what made you? Because it, I was just waiting for that moment for the, like, <laughs> for what she thought to be uncovered, and it wasn't. So, like, what in that writing process made you leave it that way okay. versus, like, giving it to her? First of all, thank you for doing that in such a non-spoiler way. That is really hard to do, honestly. Like, it's like a game show, but I know, I like it. Um, so I, I take this for anybody who hasn't read the book, just as a question about the ending, sort of, and I think authors get asked this a lot, sort of, how, why did you decide to end it there? Why did you not show us, you know, what, why didn't you bring this thing in? Why didn't you show us, like, where that person ends up, or do these people ever, whatever happens? Um, for me, I think uh, Ann Patchett, who's a, a literary hero of mine, talks about the meaning of the book as, as it, it's not made between the writer and the book, it's made between the book and the reader. And what I understand her to be meaning is that the writer needs to leave a little bit of space for the reader to fill in some of what happens. I think of it as being, I need to show you sort of the arc of the character's path, if you imagine like a baseball. Um, you need to have an idea of where it's going by the end. You don't necessarily need to see it land. Um, and for me, I, the trick is always sort of stopping at the right moment. So again, I'm trying to answer without giving anything away. But I, I felt like I, I, with what was on the page, I hoped that the reader had enough pieces of the puzzle to kind of go, oh, okay, she, she found that she's never going to know that thing, and to know where the characters were going to go, um, and to leave that little bit of space for the reader to kind of come in and complete the circuit. So, thank you for the question. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, so again, without trying to spoil anything about the book, so the characters in the book are sort of torn between two sides of this issue. Yeah. And as you kind of talked about before, it seemed intentional that the narrator um, was neutral to either side. Um, and while I, I empathize personally with both, I had like a clear idea of what I thought was, you know, right 
person's wrong or where things should have landed. And I was just curious if you, when writing it, even though you obviously wanted to let the reader, you know, decide for themselves if you, you don't have to say which side, but if you, yeah. like, personally sort of. No, this is a great question. Um, so one of the issues, and this isn't a spoiler, I promise, one of the issues that happens in the book is that there's a transracial adoption that's contested. There's a Chinese-American baby who's been left at a fire station, and there's a, an affluent white couple that wants to adopt her. And they adopt her, they've had her for almost a year, and they're in the process of adopting her, and her biological mother comes back and wants to get the baby back. And so there are a lot of questions about who should get custody of this baby, who's going to be the best parent for the baby, who you know, has the right to parent her. Um, and when I was writing this scene, I, I had opinions of my own, um, as, as many of you probably do, and as, as you said you did. And this is where um, having a writer's group is really helpful. Uh, I'm part of a writer's group in Boston, and I gave them pages of a courtroom scene where both sides are arguing for you know, who should get custody of the baby. And they read them and they said, okay, when we read these, it feels like the narrative, the book, is pushing us to one side. Is that what you want? And I thought about it and I said, you know, actually no. I, I feel like that says to me then that I haven't given the other side sort of enough space. I haven't done enough work to show why the other side feels the way that they do and what their claim is. And so that was a reminder to me that as the author, I can have my own opinions, but in some ways I need to do that work of being empathetic and showing you why you know, the birth mother feels that she should get it because of these reasons and the would-be adoptive mother has these feelings and that they both do have valid claims. You as the reader kind of get to make up your own mind about whether you agree with what happens, but my job is in some ways to give you enough evidence to make up your mind. And so, I started off thinking one way, and by the end, as I did more work, sort of, you know, showing the other side, I, I became much more torn. And now, I honestly, I don't, I don't totally know how I would decide. I would, I would, I would do a Solomon and cut right down the middle. <laughs> Everybody gets half a baby, and no one will be happy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I was just curious. You said you wrote it and sold it in 2016. Was there a reason you chose to set it in 1998? versus something current, but still same story? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I started off in, in the late 90s, it's set in 1997 and 1998, first for a very pragmatic reason, which was that that was when I was in high school. Uh, I would have been the same age as Lexi, who is the oldest teenager in the book. And so it was a world that I knew really well. I knew what those kids would have been wearing, I knew what, they, you know, what the cool restaurants were, what slang they would be using, what TV shows they would be watching. But um, I think the job of a writer is after you start off with your first impulse, you have to go back and say, okay, does this make sense? Am I, is this in here for a reason? And I, I realized that the 90s actually was a great time to bring up some of the things that the characters are dealing with. Because first, I knew these characters were going to have secrets, and I wanted to make it a little bit harder for them to find out information. So now, if you want to know about somebody's background, you can Google them and you can find out quite a lot quite quickly. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit harder. I wanted them to have to sort of work for that. Um, I wanted to leave dark spaces where the characters could hide or think they could hide. But the second was that I, I remember the 90s, uh, especially the late 90s, as a time where <coughs> by and large I think we felt like we were doing really well and we kind of had stuff together. 
Um, the economy was doing really well. Um, there was this great new thing called the internet that was going to be amazing and make everyone rich and also have absolutely no downside. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we were not in any major declared wars. Uh, it was pre-9-11. Uh, it was, we, we had the first uh, woman secretary of state, the first woman attorney general. It was like girl power time, so great, sexism is solved. Um, you know, we, we thought that we, I don't know why, but we thought that we were like, moving past racism. Um, all of these ideas, I think, that we thought we kind of had it together. And of course, now we look back and we see, actually, no. Um, we, you know, we had a president who, who was having an extramarital affair with his intern. 9-11 um, was brewing, even though we didn't know it. The internet bubble was about to pop. And it seemed right to set a story about a community that thinks it has it all together and a family that thinks that they have it all together and they learn how drastically that is not true, it seemed like the right moment to set that story. Um, it's also just far enough away that we can see it with some clarity and we're like, oh yeah, you totally messed that up. But it's also close enough that I think most of us in the room have some memories of it and that means that we have to ask ourselves how far did we come and how far have we not come. And so, and in the end, I think the 90s was sort of like the only moment that I could set the story. Thank you. Yes. You've been wait, waiting really patiently. <laughs> well, I, I have to admit, um, one of my questions was actually already kind of asked. Okay. And I, I was belaboring very, very uh, deliberately on how to ask about an end of a book without ruining it. But I'm not going to go there. I'm going to ask kind of a different and couple it in with um, the, the series with Hulu. Yeah. Um, because of the way the book ends and how so many things are sort of left um, in the air, do you, have you thought about uh, having a sequel or have you thought about or talked about with um, the producers of the upcoming show about a continuation of that effort, if, you know, how, how that might roll out? So right now, um, everything that I know about the characters is in the book. I promise that I'm not holding out on you. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, I, I don't know their secret lives, but um, I, I will tell you that I think they're all, it, they've all learned something from what happened, and I think they will be on different paths than they would have been before. So right now, I don't have any plans to write a sequel. Um, never say never. But um, with a TV show, it becomes a different question. I didn't know this, but when you sign up with a producer, what you're giving them is not just the rights to this particular book and this story, but the rights to the characters. And so what that means is if you all watch the show on Hulu, they may decide to do a second season, and that means that they can make up other stories about these characters. So this is what has happened with uh, Big Little Lies, um, that it was based on a book by Leanne Moriarty, and they kind of covered that book. And it was so popular that now they're making a sequel. And that is stuff that I think she's been involved in writing, and I might get to be. But they also might do something else. And so I'm learning that this is sort of a whole brave new world of, mm -hmm. of figuring out how it's going to go. And uh, part of me is sort of curious to know what someone else would do with these characters. So we'll see what happens. Okay, thank you. I don't know how we're doing on time. Yeah, Hi, Questions? as a uh, graduate of Shaker Heights High School, <laughs> as an editor of the Grist Mill, you should have written for us. Uh, <laughs> I, I worked for the literary magazine. Grist Mill was the yearbook. Uh, I worked for the literary magazine, which is the Samantha team. So that was my nerd direction. <laughs> I, as, and as a journalist, I'm very interested in the point of germination. You were starting out as a poet, but was there an experience in high school or even middle school in Shaker 
that all of a sudden started seeing this development into an author? Um, I do, this is a big question, so I'm trying to think about it. I don't know if there was a one point uh, at which I sort of wanted to become an author. I was a really early reader, and um, as another proud grad of Shaker Heights Public Schools, um, I had a lot of really great teachers, particularly English teachers, who um, really encouraged me. Uh, they were, when I think back, I, I had a lot of great teachers. Um, really great school system is one of the reasons that my parents chose to move to the community. But when I think back, I think about English teachers who saw that I was reading or that I was writing stories and they encouraged me. Or they said, oh, you know, you read that. You might like this. Try this. Um, it's one of the things that I think teachers can do that's kind of amazing. Uh, I remember the first time I met an author was in elementary school, it was fifth grade. Um, there was an author named Brian Jacques who had come to school. He wrote a series of children's books called Moss Flower uh, and Redwall. They're about like animals and they, they have swords and they fight. Um, they're really great. But he came to talk to us and my teacher made a point of making me go up. I was very shy and she kind of dragged me up in my memory and said, this is Celeste. She wants to be an author. And it was the first time that anybody had actually made me think that was a thing that you could do or that that was a thing that was available to me. And he very nicely signed my book, and I still have it. But I think there's something really to be said about um, kind of showing young people especially what's possible to them um, and showing, like, allowing them to imagine that that is a world that could exist. Like, there could be a world in which there were... I didn't think that anybody was going to want to read my first novel because it's a book about a mixed-race Asian and white family. And I thought, no one is going to care about this. No one's going to want to read it. And I'm happy that that was not the case. But I think especially for kids who are out of the mainstream for any reason, because they're kids of color, because they're um, coming from a different socioeconomic background, or because they're queer, or whatever it is, I think it's so important for them to be able to see themselves in literature and to be able to see that people think their stories are worth hearing. Um, that was something that I was really grateful to get, I think, from my education. And one of the things that makes me happiest is when young writers come up to me and they say, I've never, I didn't know that I was allowed to do this, but now I'm thinking maybe it's possible that I could write a book. And I, I'm, that's the nicest thing that I could hear, honestly. And I tell them, like, great, like, go and tell your stories because we need them. So that's a great note to end on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.